my picture of heaven was blown last night. I don't know whether I'm disappointed or... I mean, I must say that uh, mine was not a damp cloud. Mine was a fluffy, select comfort kind of cloud that I would be lying on in eternity and with a big steak on this side and I'd just roll over and take a bite and around. A milkshake on this side, never gain weight. And then you had to come and... and say those kind of words. I don't know what to do now. I'm lost. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) You know, what he was saying last night is true even to the most spiritual of us all, isn't it? Gosh. It's been an honor to have Lance with us. It is an honor to have someone whose life has been given to bring maturity to the church, to usher us into a a higher way of life, Uh, always raising us up as really citizens of the kingdom. Lance, you're a blessing, and we welcome you once again to speak to us. I would like to read just a few scriptures that have been, we've read a number of times, but repeating it will not be bad. Zechariah chapter 12, from verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus saith the Lord who stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling unto all the peoples round about. And upon Judah also shall it be in the siege against Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will make Jerusalem Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the peoples, all that burden themselves with it, shall be sore wounded, and all the nations of the earth shall be gathered together against it. Verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look unto me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him 
as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Chapter 13, verse 1. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And then I would like to turn you to the New Testament, to the Roman letter of the Apostle Paul, and to many of you very well-known chapter. I will read from verse 11, and uh, chapter 11 and verse 11 of, Rome, of the Roman letter of the Apostle Paul. I say then, did they stumble that they might fall? God forbid. But by their salvation is come, by the, but by their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Now if their fall is the riches of the world, and their loss the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. But I speak to you, that are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I glorify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy them that are my flesh and may save some of them. For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Uh, then um, from uh, uh, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and thou being a wild olive was grafted in among them and didst become partaker with them of the root of the fatness of the olive tree, glory not over the branches. But if thou gloriest, it is not thou that bearest the root, but the root thee. Verse 24, for if thou wast cut out of that which is by nature a wild olive tree and wast grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits that a hardening in part hath befallen Israel until the full number of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. Even as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer. He shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As touching the gospel... They, the Jewish people, are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the patriarch's sake. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Could we have a further word of prayer? Beloved Lord, we do thank you that we're here in your presence this morning. Anything can happen when you're present. And Lord, we want to thank you that you have been with us through these days. 
and you have revealed something more of yourself to us. We thank you for that. It is no small thing that you should give light to us, revelation and illumination from your word. And Lord, we want to thank you that you have made provision for us this morning in that anointing grace and power that you've made available to us, which you won at great cost on Calvary and made a reality in the person of the Holy Spirit. Into that anointing, we stand by faith, both for the speaking of your word and the hearing of it, that, Lord, we may meet with you. Lord, when you really meet with someone, it's a turning point in their life. Meet with us, we pray this morning and we shall be careful to give you all the glory and all the praise and we ask this in the name of our Messiah the Lord Jesus Amen well I think you know the theme of these few days together has been his land our land we've, we've said a lot of things Quite a lot of things were negative, hard to hear, especially if you're American. But on the other side, we've also said some comforting things. And I want to spend this morning talking about the possibility of the Lord doing some great things. First of all, there is a tremendous amount within the word of God about Israel. You can't displace it. You can't replace it. There's no substitute and there is no alternative. The word is very clear. This unsaved, Christ-rejecting nation that God has brought back from the ends of the earth back to their original homeland and over which there have been ten wars in the 62 years of her modern history is home to stay. Because she will be the scene of one of the greatest miracles in the long history of miracles in the word of God. I read to you Zechariah and I read to you that portion about Jerusalem being a cup of reeling to all the peoples round about. That is our neighbors. And then uh, a, a, a burdensome stone, as I said yesterday, sounds so poetic, a burdensome stone all who burden themselves with it will be sore wounded. What it means is if you try to move this stone from where God has placed it to a place you think is more politically acceptable, you will find you've ruptured yourself and your lifting days are over. And it's not just the states as the superpower. It doesn't matter whether it's the UK or Russia or the Quartet 
or the United Nations. It doesn't matter who it is. God is no respecter of persons. And um, his word is forever true. If they try to move the dest the move Jerusalem from her divine destiny to another place that they think will solve the problems of the Middle East and the world conflict that we face, they have another thing coming. Because God has very clearly stated in his word that there is a phase in world history somewhere toward the end of world history when all the nations of the earth will be against Jerusalem. It is my belief that we have entered into that phase. With the Gaza war and then the passport scandal and then the flotilla and the fact that unbeknown to most people Turkey has signed a secret agreement uh, with, under the auspices of the president of Syria President Assad signed a secret pact with Iran the pact is simple these two nations are not Arabs but they have signed a pact Iran has agreed to restore the uh, position of Turkey as it was in the Ottoman Empire, a very great influence in the Middle East. These two nations have very fine armies. Uh, Turkey is a member of, the, of NATO. She has a marvelous air force. Air Force, uh, uh, mostly equipped by American planes. She has a marvelous navy and a very fine fighting force in the Turkish army. Iran doesn't have such a good air force and some of her missiles uh, well, if they aim at Jerusalem, they'll probably get Damascus. Um, it's not so good. It could come down on the Temple Mount and blow the whole place to pieces, and then we shall be blamed. They will say that we secretly put bombs there and blew the place up, and we attacked Damascus and wiped it out and all the rest of it. But the fact still remains that um, Iran has a marvelous army in the Islamic Revolutionary Guards. They are the ones that are training Hezbollah, the Syrian army, and Hamas. Of course, Turkey is Sunni. You know that Islam is divided into two big de denominations, the Sunnis and the Shia. And um, Iran is Shia, but they have agreed that Iran should be the pioneer and head, heading up of all things Shia, and Turkey should pioneer and head up all things Sunni. 
These two, you've only got to look at a map. You will see immediately they've got Israel like a nut in a nutcracker. If they adopt a strategy, then our situation in Israel becomes far more serious. Now, this againstness that we read of, the Lord says, and, and all the nations, not just a few, and all the nations of the earth will be against Jerusalem. And then again in verse 6, he says, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And as I pointed out to you, um, in chapter 14 of the same prophecy, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, it says, and I will gather all the nations that come against Jerusalem to battle. Those two, that little word, to battle, is added. In other words, that's the end of this phase. We, I believe, have entered it. And, um, uh, well, I don't want to just get into the political, but the fact of the matter is the United States is having, having second thoughts. The president wants to keep what he calls the bond between the United States and Israel alive. How much that is political, we don't know. How much it has to do with the November elections or other possible elections further on, we don't know. But what we do know is that the President of the United States, for the first time, has an Islamic background and has had an Islamic education. And his speech, which I listened to very carefully, the whole speech in Cairo, was the speech of a Muslim. His five words, I am a Christian, mean very little to me. Why? Because I cannot believe that anyone could have lived under the ministry of Jeremiah Wright for 20 years and not had some influence. The man is violently anti-Jewish, anti-Israel, and I don't know what there is that's really, truly Christian. I think the fact that your president may be well-meaning is arranging a, a conference with all the Muslim nations to follow up on the Cairo speech is very, very interesting. And I think also that his word to the president of NASA to make a priority foremost that to reach out to the Muslim nations over the space program, I find incredible. Especially, as I said to you one of these occasions, um, Islam is now making the third attempt at world domination. Now, I, do we must give President Obama the, uh, the goodness. He has a good family life. I think he tries to be an honest man. And I think that he's well-meaning in certain things. He is a Jew to the Jew, a Christian to the Christian, 
and a Muslim to the Muslims. He is the first president who ever had Pesach, Passover, celebrated twice in the White House. He is the first president who, speaking in Cairo, mentioned the Quran four times and mentioned the Prophet Muhammad. This againstness, if once the United States begins to balance her policy in uh, the Middle East, it will have unbelievable results, both for the United States and for the Middle East. You cannot play games with God. His counsel is immutable. That means that if he does something, it is forever. His word lives and abides forever. It's not as if it becomes irrelevant because of age. It's not as if somehow or other what God has said uh, 4,000 years ago doesn't have much meaning or power in the 21st century. God does not live in time. With him there's no past and no future. It is all present. He is, I am that I am. That means that he made a pact with Abraham some 4,000 years ago, and it was as if he made it a few hours ago. It is as alive in his heart and in his mind as if he had just made the covenant. And then come along all these national leaders, the British, the European leaders, the Russian leaders and the leaders of the United States and say that pact has nothing whatsoever to do with conditions today. There's another group there. I mean, the interesting thing is when the Lord made the pact, there were a whole lot of not just Palestinians. There were Gergeshites, Hittites, Jebusites and all the otherites. They were all there. When he made the pact, now he might be quite happy to think there's only one group that is there. We therefore have an incredible situation that we're facing. All the nations, because it makes sense to the modern man. There are two peoples living there. To divide the land into the promised land and, um, and, and to, to make two sovereign states living side by side in peace. The problem is it will never happen. Ariel Sharon thought that by leaving and withdrawing from Gaza, the Gazans would love us. Quite the opposite. It became a hotbed of trouble. They left all those houses intact. They left all the organic farms functioning. 
so that the Palestinians could step into those homes and live in them and, and, and make a great profit from the lucrative business of organic farming. The best in Israel. They destroyed every home and all the farms. It must seem very strange to good Americans to think that people would destroy what could have been their livelihood and profit. But they don't think like Americans. And they don't think like Western Europe or Britain. Well, do you not think it an incredible thing that God says, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem? That's a terrible word. He didn't just say, I will seek to, to educate all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Or I will seek to deter all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Or I will humble all the nations. He uses in Hebrew a word, shatter, destroy, completely bring to nothing. Is God God? Is his word as true today as when it was spoken? Whether 4,000 years or 2,000 years ago. Of course it is. That means the United States, Britain, Europe are facing destruction. The economic disaster, the financial meltdown, and the climate change which we're told by Mr. Gore is all to do with us wicked human beings who have somehow or other caused the whole problem. I think that's possibly true, part of it. But I don't think that it is wholly to do with human beings. Because if human beings have changed, changed our climate, then human beings can put it right. If they'll only wake up. And I think it was very, almost one of God's, when it says, he that sitteth in the heavens will laugh. He will hold them in derision. They had a great conference in, Dan in Copenhagen, in Denmark, on the heating up of the world climate. And we had the biggest snowstorms <laughs> that we've had in years, both in North America, in China, in Manchuria, in Korea, and in Britain and Northern Europe. That's incredible. I think the Lord's behind it. It's all part of his destruction plan. I'm sorry to say it. So, listen again. I will seek to destroy, in that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's why I have said repeatedly over the last few years, that um, God has a controversy with the nations. He has now become an enemy of the nations because they have no respect for his word, no respect for his covenants. And I know that there is this emergent church that talks 
about no, uh, no affliction, no tribulation, uh, no hell, and no judgment. As if God has got so old, as I said yesterday, that he has retired and is now vegetating somewhere in one corner of the heavens. Too old to take too much note of what's happening. Just a dear old man. If you can pull the wool over his eyes, they have another thing coming. Some people tell me that the Old Testament is full of judgment, the New Testament's full of love and grace. They have never read the book of Revelation. No wonder Christians don't want to read the book of Revelation. It's horrific. The judgments that are described in the book of Revelation, are this is the New Testament. It is the New Covenant. And some Christians are almost afraid to read the book of Revelation because of the description of those judgments. A third of the things in the sea dying, the fish, a third of the green plants dying on the face of the earth. It doesn't make quite so much, doesn't sound quite so strange now, does it? As once it seemed. So, my dear friends, I, I really, really just want to get this over very clearly. We have moved, I think, into this phase. Now, in a moment, I will speak about the states and how you, I think you should pray. This is only my uh, view of how you should pray, but you take it to the Lord. But I want to say something about Israel. Because here in this gloomy picture of all the nations against Jerusalem, Jerusalem becoming a goblet of wine into which God the Almighty has introduced a poison that renders every people that take it insensible. Exactly. As I said to you just the other day, we could have, we could have completely eliminated some of the diseases of the Middle East within years if there had been cooperation with Israel. We could have irrigated whole areas of the desert, reforestated them. It would have had a wonderful effect on our climate. We would have had a greater rainfall, apart from anything else. <laughs> a cup of reeling rendered them insensible. And then a burdensome stone that ruptures. Well, I, I went through a whole list of all the empires that have disappeared from world history who tried to change the divine destiny of Jerusalem, including the Soviet Union, the Soviet Empire. It's all gone. Of course, we'll have more trouble from Russia. But uh, the empires have gone. When you look carefully at this scripture, there is something wonderful. Right where the Lord says, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, he says, and, and, there's a little, that little preposition, and, I will pour 
the spirit of grace and supplication upon the house of David, the establishment, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they shall look unto me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as for an only son, and be in bitterness for him as for a firstborn. This is awe-inspiring. At the very moment that all the nations come against Israel, the whole purpose of God as found in the word of God for the Jewish people will be fulfilled. The againstness of the peoples is nothing as far as the Lord is concerned. How did you get saved? I'll tell you. You may, of course, said someone led you to the law. Maybe you stood up in some meeting or maybe you went forward or you took a decision form somewhere and somehow something happened to you. But I'll tell you what really happened. The spirit of grace touched you. That's the way you got saved. No other way. You may have been brought up in a Christian family. But when the spirit of grace touched you, what you'd heard for years became reality. And suddenly you saw. The spirit of grace. But not just the spirit of grace. The spirit of supplication. Now this is incredible. This word means beseeching appeal. Not just an appeal, but a beseeching appeal. The best way to put it in English is inquiry. A spirit of inquiry. Well, there's never been that, really, with the Jewish people concerning Jesus. He has been written off, written out of, the, of our history. So it's all the more remarkable that in this time, that we have entered into, something's going to happen with the Jewish people and it is all to do with the Spirit of God. That's exactly how you got saved. I don't know if you inquired about the Lord Jesus. Suddenly, in your heart came a query. Who is he? What did he do? What does it mean to me? And you were saved. When is this going to happen? When all the nations are against Jerusalem and when God seeks to destroy the nations that come against Jerusalem. At the same time, in the same period, in the same phase of history, the Lord begins to do something with the Jewish people. This is incredible. It is true that more Jews are being saved today than at any other time since the early years when so much of the nation became believers, Messianic Jews. But um, today something is happening. It is amazing to see what is happening. How is it going to happen? We have here... You, all of you, I don't know what versions you're all using, but most of the modern versions, and even the King James, and certainly the old, uh, uh, the King James and the new King James, all translates this this way. 
and they shall look on me whom they pierced and shall mourn for him as for an only son and be in bitterness for him as for a firstborn. The American Standard Version of 1901 was the only one who stood out and translated, and they shall look unto me. Now, if I look on the Queen of England, it means I physically see her. But if I look unto the Queen of England, it means I respect her office and I respect her. If I, if I look on President Obama, it means I see him physically. But if I look unto him, it means I respect his office and, and I respect him as a person. You understand? Now this little word again is a little preposition that everywhere in the Old Testament is translated toward or unto. Once or twice it's translated on. And for theological reasons, they translated this because of what it says in Revelation 1, and they that crucified him shall look on him and wail. And they took that to mean, ah, it's Zechariah. They shall mourn for him, be in bitterness for him. There you are. But the Romans were a much part of the crucifixion as the Jews. This means that many people believe that only when Jesus comes and the Jews actually see him, they will believe. But has God ever saved anyone by sight? Did he even save Abraham by sight when the God of glory appeared to him? What happened? What did he see? Who did he see? It changed his life. But it was spiritual. Even the Apostle Paul, when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and knocked him out. And when he came round, he was sort of a bit dozy. He said, who are you, sir? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul could have said, you got it wrong. I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting you disciples out of that vision with Abraham came an understanding of the city of God the eternal city the new Jerusalem the bride of the lamb it's amazing to me that Christians with their new covenant and new testament don't often have the same understanding that Abraham had I talked about it last night Instead of seeing the end that the Lord has, the goal that God, Abraham saw it. And, and his whole life, he sought for the city which has the foundations. He visited Jerusalem, but it didn't mean anything to him. He was looking for the city. He saw in the God of glory, the city of glory. He changed his life. The apostle began to understand that Jesus and those he saves are all of one. If you touch them, you touch him. From this came the apostles' revelation, head and body. We sometimes think of Jesus as the head in the way that we seek of a principal of the hospital, chancellor of a university, prime minister of a cabinet, 
president of the government of the United States. There's the head, we're the staff. You understand? But the way the New Testament, the Holy Spirit uses is head and body. Part your head from your body and within minutes you're dead. You are an organism, an organic whole. This is the church. And we've missed the way in so organizing the church that the head is up there and really what he says hasn't very much to do with us down here. We don't hear him. We don't obey him. We have committees that bow their head and councils and boards bow their head and say, Lord, will you please guide us? And then they all got together and they all say, well, there's this and this and this and this. And then at the end of it, they bow their head and say, thank you, Lord, for leading us. And then they wonder why the Lord never blesses. There's no awakening, there's no revival, there's no, no revolution. <laughs> so simple. Hidden body. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of God and was enthroned and poured out the Holy Spirit, what happened? For the first time in history, 120 human beings saved by the grace of God were joined to a head in heaven. A body. They were joined to him. And while they heard him and obeyed him, they turned the world upside down. Within hours, they were 3,120. Within weeks, they became 5,000. Within a few more weeks, 8,000. And a great company of priests believed. Probably those who were on duty. When the the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, they saw a miracle. And said it was at the time that Jesus died. Well I mustn't get off track. <laughs> I'm talking about Israel. But the fact of the matter is. That when, when the church really becomes. The body of the Lord Jesus. When it becomes an organism. With organization. But it's an organism. It's all to do with life. It's the organization of life. Not dead organization. That kills, crystallizes, denominationalizes. All through the history of the church. The Lord has launched new great moves of the spirit. Whereby we've come back to the original. Then within a generation or two. We've deadened it, we've crystallized it, we've denominationalized it, we've systematized it. Then the Lord says, what shall I do? And he launches a new initiative. Look at them, Donatists, Montanists, Bogomils, Priscillianists, uh, Waldenses, Reformers, Quakers, Enthusiasts, that was the original name for Methodists, much better. When they became Methodists, they died. But once they were enthusiasts, they changed the world. And the brethren, and so it goes on. Right down today, the charismatic, which has now become a thing. It was a real move of the Spirit of God that brought millions and millions of people into the salvation of God. But come back to this question of Israel. And we could talk for a long time about the church and the need of the church. But uh, 
how are these people going to be saved? When they look unto him and mourn and are in bitterness. It will be something that you never really had, quite the same, except the sense of sin that made you weep. I remember when I was saved, I had really, I was only 12 and a half. I really hadn't sinned. But such a sense of sin came over me. I wept and wept and wept. That's a good old-fashioned conversion. Today we put a hand up or go forward and no one bothers to do much more except say, oh, thank you, you're saved. So lots of people who are in the church are not ever born again. We're coming back to this thing. How is it going to happen? By the Spirit of God. The Spirit of grace will answer the inquiry. And they shall see with the eye of the heart Jesus as the key to Jewish history. They will see him as the key that unlocks all the suffering, all the anguish, and all the glory. Marvelous. What will the results be? Well, let me tell you straight away. For all the redeemed, and I mean the Gentiles as well, one new man, it will be life from the dead. Not in the millennium, but now. It will pulsate a resurrection life and power of the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit will go right through the body of Christ in all the nations. That's the result. Did you notice in that day a fountain will be opened for sin and uncleanness for Israel? Of course, it's the same fountain that you've washed your sins away in. There's no difference. Same Holy Spirit, same work of the Holy Spirit, and the same wonderful Calvary, the finished work of the Lamb. Well, am I going on too long uh, this morning? But you see, here's the point. Now listen carefully to me. If that is the case, this is why Satan is now um, uh, uh, bringing together his biggest plan to destroy Israel before they can be saved. That's where we need the prayer, your prayer. Because Satan's idea is another holocaust. Just like the Ayatollah Khomeini that Ahmadinejad and the other clerics in Iran worship almost the ground he walks on. He said, let us encourage all Jews to go to Israel and then we'll get them in one blow. Following exactly that strategy, the nuclear plans of Iran. Satan cannot bear the thought of the Jewish people being saved. Why? Because he hates Abraham. 
He hates not only the fact that a nation came into being through, through um, Abraham, but in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So you have this amazing thing that happened. First Israel, and then all the nations, redeemed ones from all the nations. He hates the thought that the thing will be completed did you notice a partial petrification has taken place in Israel until the full number of the Gentiles become in? So when we come toward the end of this great work of the gospel in all the nations which the Holy Spirit has supervised and managed, then the Lord says, I will turn back to the Jewish people and save them. And I personally differ from... from um, um, David Pawson and some of the other uh, teachers on this point. They believe that all Israel means only Jews. I believe all Israel includes everyone in the olive tree. If you're a wild olive branch and have not a drop of Jewish blood in you uh, and saved by the grace of God, you are in the olive tree. The extraordinary thing is that normally when you graft uh, uh, a branch into a good tree. Uh, it is a good branch on a poor, uh, a kind of wild uh, base. It's very strange to take wild olive branches and graft them into a good olive tree. And here is an even a more amazing thing. When those wild olive branches bear fruit, that's never happened in the whole history of, of agriculture. These wild olive branches can bear fruit. If you're bearing fruit, it's a miracle. <laughs> you're a wild olive branch grafted into the Lord Jesus, into the good olive tree. It's amazing. But there's no difference. It's one olive tree. And everyone who's there is there by the finished work of the Lord Jesus. By the blood of the Lamb, no other way. Saved by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Now, Satan knows that. Satan, for Satan, the possibility of the Jewish people being saved is a bell tolling out his end. And he will do everything in his power to avert it. Well, you say, but he's, everything else he's done, the Lord has used. Yes, but he's so proud. That's the problem with Satan. Have you ever met someone who's so proud that they're stubborn and blind? We all know such people. You can't change their mind. They're obstinate. And they go from fiasco to fiasco. Satan is the same. He's so full of pride. He believes in his ability. And so he believes that he can avert it. And how will he do it? He will bring all the nations against Jerusalem. And he will somehow enable a nation like Iran to get its, its A-bomb, its, its nuclear device. 
We need to pray that the purpose of God be fulfilled. What I said yesterday is absolutely true. Is it in the book? It is in the book. If it's in the book, you can stand on it. And you can stand on it until it's fulfilled. But I must finish. What about, um, what about um, the United States? Now, I don't want to upset you because you're all good patriotic Americans. And I don't want to be lynched um, uh, uh, by you all. But the fact still remains... Believe it or believe it not, the United States is not mentioned by name in the book. <laughs> Did you hear that, you good Americans? <laughs> the United States is not mentioned by name. It's not as if the Lord says, and I will protect the United States. And I will save her. It's not in the book. We have to infer it from certain promises of the Lord. There is absolutely no doubt about your founding fathers. No doubt about the honor they gave to God and his word. Even those who were deists, at least they believed in God. But your pilgrim fathers, the earliest ones who came, they were an afflicted people, thrown out of their countries, hunted, persecuted, many to the death. They came here, they left all their goods, all that they had, and came to this country. And they set up something which really, quite honestly, is a marvel. Whatever weaknesses it had, it was a marvel. And the States has become one of the great moral forces and ethical forces in the world. But for the Antichrist to come, something has to happen to the United States. In my estimation, the United States is the last great bulwark against the coming of the Antichrist. Now do you begin to begin to understand what's been happening in the past couple of years. It is a corruption within the system, a deterioration within the system. To bring the United States to its knees into a total helplessness. How should you pray? There's absolutely nothing wrong with you praying that the supreme justices will be people who honor the word of God and the Judeo-Christian principles. There's nothing wrong in that. As long as you have an, the end in view, which is the coming of the kingdom of God. There's nothing wrong in praying for the Pentagon and for those who are... Um, uh, watching over the safety of the United States, the security or homeland security and others, nothing wrong in praying for them. But the fact still remains that you have a big problem 
the United States has pioneered the idea of the division of the promised land. It was Mr. Bush Sr. who was the first to pioneer the idea. Mr. Bush Jr., George Bush, also gave his whole tenure as president to the division of the promised land. And now we have President Obama. There is no way that America will not be destroyed unless there is a change in that policy. So there is something you can pray for, for America. That's one thing. But even more, may I say this, there is one thing you can pray for the states and you have behind you all the power of God and all the grace and mercy of God. And that is that there would be an awakening in the United States as great as any in the history of, these, of this country. You have seen many, many revivals and awakenings. But there could be the greatest awakening of all ahead. But who is there to intercede? I said yesterday, firstly, you have to be a living sacrifice to intercede. Secondly, you must know what is the will of God. Well, I think I can say in the name of the Lord, that it is the will of God that there should be an awakening in the United States. I don't have any doubt about it. You can forget all the other things, the little details and so on, but this great possibility, an awakening that would sweep millions into the kingdom of God, here in the States and Canada, is it possible? Yes, it is. But this is the challenge. Who will rise to the need? When I was a little boy, I used to hear a story that my mother told. And probably I must have been a bit morbid in my outlook. I asked her again and again to repeat the story. It was to do with the Netherlands. You know, the Netherlands, for the largest part, is under the sea level. And the great dikes keep the sea out. But the great fear of rabbits, because they have burrows in the dikes. And they always used to say, if you see any water pouring through the dike, immediately they would ring the bell in the nearest hamlet and it would go from hamlet to town to all over. So people would come to try and plug the hole. But this little boy used to play on the dike and he heard the sound of water 
He couldn't do anything. He was too small. Even if he'd run, he couldn't get help. So he put his arm into the hole. They found him dead, but he saved Holland. That's the challenge. Do you care enough for the United States to be a living sacrifice? Do you care enough for the United States to lose your self-life? To give up all right to yourself? And intercede? That's the challenge. Unfortunately, we have many churches, powerful, well-attended, wall-to-wall carpeting, ministers of everything, youth, age, children, choirs beautiful, organs that are magnificent. But it's Laodicean. No one hears the Lord. The most plaintive thing in the New Testament is this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, let him open the door and I will come in and will sup with him and he with me. We normally use that as an evangelistic message. It's not, not bad, not wrong in a way, but it's a misapplication because it was the Lord speaking to a church of born-again believers. They had the Lord's table, communion. They had Bible studies. They had prayer meetings. They had evangelistic outreach. They had everything. It was the a New Testament church. Somehow they had become deaf. And here was the Lord they were singing about. And the Lord they were studying in the word. And the Lord they were praying to in his name. And he was outside the door. Outside the organization. Outside the whole system. And he was knocking. If any man hear my voice if you care for the United States can you hear that voice of his and are you prepared for the cost it will cost you everything to intercede it cost Daniel everything Dear Daniel, he had a whole history. He was a eunuch. It was the only way a Jewish boy or any other boy from other nations, ethnic groups could enter the royal service. He had suffered a lot. He refused to eat anything unkosher. You remember, he nearly lost his life because of it. He had a history. 
And God took him to the very top of one of the greatest empires of world history, both the Babylonian and followed by a much different and much kinder empire, the Persian. And he oversaw the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the cities and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and of the house of God. It cost him everything. I've no doubt that Daniel would have delighted himself to go back with them. But he didn't. He stayed instead behind to watch over the whole, the, the whole strategy of the rebuilding of Israel. Well, now I can only say here is the challenge. God speaks to you. And says, are you ready? Are you ready for the cost? May the Lord answer it, both in your prayer for Israel and your prayer for the United States. Let's just remain in silence just for a few moments. Let's take our hearts before God. And let's wonder if that question is asked to each one of us individually, just for a moment. Lord, we bow humbly before you. We are those who come with another question on our hearts. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid that you may ask us to do something that we don't want to do? Since when does that kind of fear rule our lives? You've never asked us to do something we wanted to do. So in the name of Jesus, we remove any fear that would keep us from hearing your voice. When the question comes, will you intercede? May we rise up and say, oh God, teach us how.
show us the way. If we love this nation, it is because you put us here, because you gave us this place and what it stood for and the freedom which it so proudly expresses. We bow before you. We cry for an awakening again in our midst, in our very own hearts. Let us not wander off the beaten path, the path of God. You are our Lord. You are our God. You are our Savior. You are our Redeemer. You are our Forgiver. You are our Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You sit in the highest place of authority in all of the universe. You intercede for us every day. You put your life in that place. May we, may we learn to be like you. In Jesus' name. Amen.